Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Gist is sponsored by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code THEGIST. And by Automatic, the connected car adapter that pairs your car to your smartphone. Diagnose engine problems, drive more efficiently, remember where you parked, call for help after an accident, and more. Save 20% with free shipping and a 45-day return policy when you go to automatic.com slash gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, March 18th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. David Isay gave a TED Talk yesterday, won a million-dollar prize from TED. You know David Isay. He's the guy behind StoryCorps. StoryCorps is one of the best things on NPR. The touching stories could be between a mother and son. I heard the first gay couple ever to adopt a baby. What a harrowing tale. I don't use that term lightly. A mother who talked to the kid who shot her son. I mean, StoryCorps is the best. It makes you cry. And now with his million dollars, David Isay is going to do something with StoryCorps because he knows the power of interviewing. Over and over again, I'd see how the simple act of being interviewed could mean so much to people, particularly those who'd been told that their stories didn't matter. His idea, his million-dollar idea, is that everyone can do it. They're going to have this app. You could interview loved ones, and it'll be archived in the Library of Congress. That's a great idea, but it's not StoryCorps. It seems like StoryCorps is saying that there is so much power in the regular story of regular people. That's actually not what it's saying. What it's saying is that StoryCorps brings you a powerful experience because it's highly culled, it's collected, it's chosen, it's edited expertly. They are regular people's stories. That's the raw material. But without the expertise, it wouldn't strike us as anything amazing like it does. I love this project. This project is great. This project is not what StoryCorps is. It's like saying, you know, this project is like mistaking a stage for Shakespeare. Or saying, hey, Mark Twain's a great writer. We're going to hand out paper and pencils. Now you're all Mark Twain. Still, I support the idea. I'm not going to be churlish. In fact, all I wanted to do was point out the brilliance of what made StoryCorps great. But it does remind me of one of the debates that's going on with the Hillary Clinton emails that historians are now behind the eight ball because they won't have access to Hillary Clinton's thinking. You know, this idea that somehow, bang, this idea that somehow everything ever should be recorded for posterity. Why don't you ask a Cleopatra historian about the richness of historical records? You've heard of Cleopatra, right? Somehow, someone, lots of people, were able to write a history of her. There were no emails. There were like a couple of things on papyrus. Maybe cuneiform was involved. Okay, let's bring it up a few thousand years. Chester A. Arthur. What do you think Chester A. Arthur historians used? Yeah, there was some missives, a little back and forth. Nothing like Hillary Clinton. How will we ever know what Hillary Clinton was thinking? How about the fact that she hasn't made a public utterance in like 30 years that hasn't been recorded?
recorded. I mean, she's just the most opaque figure other than everyone else who's ever walked the face of the earth. I think that destroying the emails and not using the official government server is bad, but weeping for the historians on the Hillary issue, come on. Hillary Clinton is a well-known figure. On the show today, we're going to do a little kryptonite in the political context. I'm going to spiel. It's not even a spiel. It's a fizzy beverage taste test. But first, a sport where an American, a well-known, beautiful American, dominates and sets records, yet Americans don't care. Skiing. Today in France, Lindsey Vonn won the World Cup downhill title a seventh time, a record for women, 66 career wins. That means she is, to put it plainly, the greatest woman skier in the history of the sport. An American, another American, Bodie Miller, is also an all-time great, though this season he was hobbled by injuries and is nearing retirement. That two Americans can achieve so much in a sport that America pays so little attention to is the subject of the fall line, how American ski racers conquered a sport on the edge. Its author, Nathaniel Vinton, is here. Hello, Nathaniel. Hello. Happy to be here. Great to have you. You're a talented winter athlete who's 16 years old. What kind of athlete goes into ski racing and what kind of athlete goes into the other now more popular extreme sports, X game type sports? That's a really good question. I think certainly people who can live with delayed gratification go for ski racing because nobody becomes a great downhiller until their mid-20s, maybe a little bit before that. No one starts winning the really great downhills of the world in Austria and Switzerland. No one starts winning those races until they're in their late 20s, typically. And the vast majority of people that set out to do it get injuries, some some of them really horrific. So you, you really have to be patient to go into ski racing and not something that, you know, you might be on ESPN the next year. So the snowboarding, I mean, they call themselves the extreme sport, but it seems to me that it's the skiers who are much more extreme. I mean, in terms of loneliness, in terms of seriousness, in terms of sacrifice, in terms of it seems like a lot less fun, at least in terms of uh, initial immediate gratification. Yeah, I I would say all of that is true. Um, Also, in terms of speed, you can just get going a lot faster on a pair of skis than you can on a snowboard. People have broken 100 miles an hour now in World Cup ski races. Skiing is getting faster and faster. How much of that is technology? You look at the, I mean, the photos in the middle of your book and the front of your book, these guys are decked out militarily. And you have one photo from the uh, 1960s, and it just looks like a guy enjoying a fun day on the slopes. And I remember Sports Illustrated used to have tons of covers of just uh, ski fashion, like nice sweaters and maybe a pair of wooden slats. So how much uh, has technology driven the speed? Technology has really driven the speeds up in alpine ski racing uh, to the point that the organizers are going to great lengths to regulate the rules about the skis and the boots and, and how they come together. But a big part of the technology is also the manufacturing of the snow. They're, they're making snow much harder than they ever did before. They have these nozzles that they'll put on a fire hose that shoot this water into the snow so that it's virtually a hockey rink. And, you know, you'll see sometimes pictures of, of a World Cup ski race will be just glistening under lights. It's, it's really, really hard snow, and that drives the speeds up really high. They've gotten to have extremely sophisticated netting and fencing 
distances along the courses because their their great fear is, aside from a collision in the race venue, is somebody flying off into the trees. Yeah, so, I mean, Lindsey Vaughn, best in the world, wrecks all the time. If we have an image of Lindsey Vaughn, it's her, you know, writhing in agony. How much further can we push it? Is it almost too dangerous at this point? It's right at the limit. The FIS, which organizes the World Cup and oversees the Olympic racing, they know it and they're doing what they can to measure the skis and and alter the courses where they have to. Uh, It's a real tension in the sport, too, because there's a lot of purists who, just like with baseball, don't want to see many changes to some of these very traditional race courses and uh, race formats. So it's it's a tension that, that has really taken the sport over, I think. But aren't the poobahs of the FIS, didn't they come up in a time where the speeds were a lot slower? So what does traditionalism mean? Does it mean going 100 miles an hour or does it mean being able to live on your course? I would think that that would uh, adhere more to the whatever a traditional, however a traditionalist would define themselves. Well, that's the debate that pulls people in different directions in the sport. The purists want fewer rules, and the rules are the only thing, it seems, that are going to keep us from having the kind of accidents that we've had. I mean, in the last five years, alpine ski racing at the top level has had an amputation, has had a a top skier in a coma for two weeks, and then in the 90s, there were some deaths. It's something that haunts the race officials and probably some of the racers too, but the racers are doing everything they can to keep that out of their minds when they're racing. Nathaniel Vinton is the author of The Fall Line, How American Ski Racers Conquered a Sport on the Edge. He has also written American Icon, The Fall of Roger Clemens and the Rise of Steroids in America's Pastime. He did that as a reporter for the Daily News, and that's where he is now, and that's why you hear all those news people talking in the background. But thanks, Nate. Thank you. My pleasure. The Gist is sponsored by Harry's, and today my face is sponsored by Harry's. Going on MSNBC in about an hour. I used Harry's today. You could look, detect any slashes, any gashes. You'll find none. Look for any stubble. Well, I mean, it's a late day show, so that's going to sneak in. But Harry's did right by me. Harry's bought a factory in Germany because the guys who founded Harry's are passionate about creating a better shaving experience. They looked at how much razors cost, and they said, that's ridiculous. They looked at how much razors did, and they said, not good enough. So they have a starter kit for 15 bucks, a razor, three blades, and your choice of the shave cream or the foaming gel. I'm an old school guy, I like shave cream. You can get $5 off your first purchase using GIST. So that means after you use the code, you can shave for a month for 10 bucks. Shipping is always free. Go to harrys.com now, and Harry's, like I said, will give you five bucks off your first purchase, which is a pretty great purchase for 15 bucks. Use GIST at checkout for $5 off the starter set. H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Start shaving smarter today. B.A. Baracus and Air Travel. Comic strip character Kathy and Chocolate. Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. One was the other's kryptonite. Oh yeah, also Superman and kryptonite. I've been toying with this theory that in politics, we often frame who wins and who loses as strong candidates and weak candidates. But so often in a crowded field, it's just that one candidate has another specific candidate's number. One candidate might be able to beat all comers, save a single opponent who clicks all the boxes just a wee bit better. Joining me now is Harry Enton of 538.com. He covers elections. He joins us from time to time. Hello, Harry. Hello, sir. So I had this idea, and it's not just, it's not as if what 
people really necessarily do is survey a whole field of 15, 20, 358 candidates and say, I want that one. They often weigh them against each other. And so I was thinking, well, let's take one candidate and say, who would be the perfect counter to that candidate? It seems to me that many candidates have a kryptonite out there. So let's start with Jeb Bush. Possibly the front runner, certainly raising a lot of money. Who would Jeb Bush's kryptonite be? Okay, so I would start with two candidates who could be Jeb Bush's kryptonite, but we'll see if these candidates will actually officially declare that they're running. Otherwise, he's not going to have kryptonite besides his brother's last name right. sharing it. So I'd start with John Kasich and Chris Christie as Bush's kryptonite. And the reason is that they are both part of, they're all part of the establishment. They're all relatively mainstream. They're not going to really say anything, you know, where you're going, what what the heck was that? I mean, they may say offensive things about vaccines, but they're not going to say offensive things like, oh, all the gays should be rounded up. Right. So they're not Christian conservatives, but perhaps most importantly, they have that electability angle that they're going to try and push. They're all from purple blue states. Uh, they are guys who did very, very well when they were running for governor. They ran up big margins. Chris Christie ran up a big margin. John Kasich ran up a big margin in 2014. Jeb Bush ran up a pretty good margin when he last ran in 2002. And they're all going to try and appeal to the donors and say, you know, I'm the most electable guy. I'm relatively moderate. I won't make a fool. I have a chance of beating Hillary. Right. So Kasich and Christie, in a sentence, could say about Jeb Bush, yeah, what he said, but in the last 13 years. Right, exactly. Right. Exactly. Let's take Christie. Who's Christie's kryptonite? Well, I would say that Chris Christie's kryptonite is probably two people right now. One is just Jeb Bush. I mean, you are hearing all these reports of Jeb Bush going into New York, going into New Jersey and saying, Chris Christie, he's a loser. He has all these problems with scandals. Uh, he's far too moderate. I may be moderate, but I'm not as moderate as this guy, so I can at least appeal to some social conservatives. And he is basically taking Chris Christie down a peg or two. You know, if we were talking a month or two ago, I was saying, oh, Chris Christie probably going to officially declare running. At this point, yeah. I'm not really sure. He's just fallen so significantly down. At the same time, I'd say on the other end, Scott Walker, because if we're looking for the alternative to Jeb Bush, Scott Walker is also going into New York and New Jersey, taking some of these donors. And he has that social conservative strain and that economic conservative strain that can appeal to Tea Party types that Chris Christie simply doesn't have. Okay, so Jeb Bush's argument against Christie is, yeah, what he said, but without all the scandals. And Scott Walker's argument is, yeah, what he said, but I don't have to keep renegotiating my pension plan every few years because it was weak. Or, yeah, what he said, but more hardcore. Yeah, what he said, but more what you believe. And running a state right now. Who's Scott Walker's kryptonite? I would say that Scott Walker's kryptonite, a few people, one is Marco Rubio, and this is key. Is Marco Rubio going to officially declare that he's running? Again, you asked me two months ago, I don't think he's running. Now he's making all the moves that looks like he's going to run. And remember, oftentimes in primaries, you're going to have the main guy and then you're going to have the secondary guy. And the main guy in this primary looks at this point to be Jeb Bush. So you're fighting it out to be that secondary guy, the anti-Bush. And Rubio potentially could do that because Rubio has that sort of new age look. They're both elected in 2010. They're both people who are young and they are both people who, you know, were able to defeat those more establishment candidates or appeal to that anti-establishment strain. But Rubio has, which is very interesting, is he has that he 
even if he is anti-establishment, he's establishment at the same time. He has that ability to say, you know what, I'm not going to say anything crazy. I'm not that hardcore, but I'm hardcore enough to attach to you. Yeah. So for me, if I'm Scott Walker, it's Rubio who I think has the best chance of becoming the anti-Bush. I'd also bring it back to Kasich because Kasich, Midwestern governor, won 2014 and sort of has that nice guy, but tough guy type of attitude. Who's Marco Rubio's kryptonite? I mean, I think that Marco Rubio's kryptonite, if there is, it's it's really Jeb Bush and it's really Scott Walker. And it's for the reasons listed. Well, Jeb- also with Bush, the Florida thing. That's right. And I think that most of the power brokers in Florida, the people who run campaigns, they're pretty much aligned with Bush right now. Yeah. They've cast their lots with Bush. So Rubio would be starting a little bit further behind other candidates because he wouldn't have that built-in infrastructure that a senator from a big state would have just because of the presence of uh, you know this former popular governor from the same state. You're right. Exactly. You know, if I'm looking at Florida and, and thinking of Marco Rubio, I'm thinking Cuban-American vote. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is Eliana Ross Layden and most of the Cuban-American uh, representatives down in the southeastern part of the state, the Gold Coast, are getting behind Jeb Bush. And that vote is very, very important in that primary. It got behind McCain in 2008, got behind Bush in 2000, and got behind uh, Romney in 2012. And if I'm Rubio, a big problem is if I want to raise a lot of money, Florida's a place I could do it at, but a lot of those people are getting behind Bush and they're getting behind Bush very hard, very early. Now, I so far we haven't named, we, I mean, there are so many candidates we haven't named either of the social or any of the social conservatives or Ben Carson or Ted Cruz. But what about Rand Paul? You know, he would say, I'm everyone's kryptonite. I'm the opposite of all of them. And I know you're not that high on Rand Paul, but is your point basically he's not actually someone who any of these candidates should fear? Who does Rand Paul take votes away from is my question. That, and that's what kryptonite is. Yeah, yeah. that's that's our definition, the, right? The, the, the person who Rand Paul's kryptonite is, is is nobody. The only – on the reverse side, which actually gives Paul a chance to rack up votes, is there's no one who's really his kryptonite either. Right. I would say his kryptonite is probably his father in the sense that if Rand Paul is going to try and appeal to people besides very libertarian types or people who – believe in conspiracy theories. I'm not saying all Paul folks do, but let's just say I know a few and we've had some interesting conversations. More so than some of the other guys. Right. You're not going to get a Jeb Bush guy on the phone to talk about the gold standard that, for an hour with that, you. Yeah. Exactly. If I'm him, I'm thinking my best chance is you get 13 guys who run. I'm the one who has the strongest base, even if it's, you know, it isn't, That's right. you know, it's very... Um, wide, even if it's not very tall. Mm-hmm. States and, with states that allow, you know, same-day registration or um, a lot of primaries, you don't have to be pre-registered. You just walk up. He'd probably do well because the libertarians will go for him in that state. Right. I, I say, you know, get 20% of the vote in Iowa, 20% New Hampshire, hope it's enough to win and then hope the media helps lift you up. But the fact of the matter is Rand Paul's likely not going very far. Wow. Are you saying reality is Rand Paul's kryptonite? I think reality is everybody's kryptonite. Harry Enton, 538 Senior Political Analyst. Thank you so much, Harry. Thank you, sir. The Gist is sponsored by Automatic, which is a connected car adapter that pairs your car to your smartphone. So you could do things like diagnose engine problems and drive more efficiently. It helps you with the gas and how to maximize your gas mileage. It helps you remember where you parked. I use my smartphone for that already it's called taking a picture of every parking spot you're in so after a business trip great i've got all the underground garages of louisville this sounds a little more smooth a little more elegant it also has something called crash detection 
Now, that doesn't mean it's telling you, hey, this semi is barreling in on you from the left. It means after you've crashed, it will know that. It will call for help. A human will stay on the line until help arrives. It's available for $99.95. No, it's not. It's available for 80 bucks because just listeners qualify for a 20% offer. Go to automatic.com slash gist. Try it. Try it for 45 days. They've got a 45-day return policy. They've got free shipping. If you do a lot of driving or a little bit of driving and would like a little help, Automatic could really help you. Automatic.com slash gist for 20% off. And now let's play What the Hell Kind of Beverage Is That? So I was at the Rainbow, which is a good hardware store near me. Well, I don't know if it's a good hardware store, but they got good coupons. Like if you spend 50, you get five bucks. So that's a good, good hardware store. And I also like calling it The Rainbow. I'm sure its name is Rainbow. When you get to call the, sh- the store The Rainbow, it sort of uh, takes you back to a time when you called things by the the. And I found these things on the shelf. Now, I have five of them here in front of me, and I'll read the label to you. Sparkling antioxidant infusion. It also has the word bubbles on it. So this is my question. This has all the buzzwords. It has all the adjectives, sparkling, antioxidant infusion. But what the hell is it? It doesn't say what it is. It says a lot of things you want your thing to say, but what is your thing? So here to play what the hell is that beverage, I'm joined with noted purveyor of food knowledge and slate food writer, Laura V. Anderson. Hello, Laura. Hi, Mike. And I'm also joined by noted susser out of bullshit, Maria Konnikova. Thank you for joining us, Maria. Thanks, Mike. And there, as always, is Andrea Salenzi. How are you, Andrea? Hi, guys. Andrea, which flavor would you like as we play What the Hell Beverage is that? I'll take the duplicate blood orange. Okay, you get another blood orange. Which one would you like, Maria? I will have... Pineapple. We got a second blood orange. We got a grapefruit. We got I'll a I'll do pear. a grapefruit. All right. There you go. What would you like? Pear, pineapple, or orange? I guess I'll take the pear. All right. There you go. All right. Now let's go around. You could look at the label. You could try to figure out any clues from the label. Laura, you go first and tell me, what the hell kind of beverage is this? I think this is a soda. Uh-huh. It's a diet soda because it says five calories per can on it. Mm-hmm. To be more specific, I think it's basically like vitamin water, but in soda form. Okay, now that's what I was going to say. I think it's a sparkling water with a little bit of flavor, like a lemon-lime seltzer. And we should also say the word bubbles is trademarked. I have no idea how you trademark bubbles, but they've trademarked the word <laughs> bubbles. I think them. it's the whole phrase. Buy five. Buy five bubbles. This is, I think the name of this thing is buy five, B-A-I five, I think. Do you guys agree that that's the name of this thing? That would, be, that would be my guess. On top of the I and by, yeah. the little green leaf. And I think that that indicates that there is a lot of natural sweetener, also known as stevia in uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. Okay. So what, Andrea Salenzi, what the hell kind of beverage is this? What I wish it was yeah. is a flavored seltzer. Yeah. What it actually is going to be is a chemical tasting sweet slush that happens to have But what category would the makers try to put this in? Diet soda. Okay, so you two guys say diet soda. I say uh, sparkling mineral water. Maria, what do you say? Well, I was I was originally thinking diet soda, but then I saw that it contains only 1% juice, which made me wonder, what is the other 99% of stuff that's in here? Well, in your case, it's Gimby uh, grapefruit, isn't it? Yes. And then apparently there's something called the coffee fruit, which is very prominently displayed on 
this packaging. Now, I know what coffee is. I know what coffee beans are. I have to admit, I'm a relative newcomer to the concept of coffee fruit, but it's apparently a juicy red protector of the coffee bean, as we learn. And it's infused into every can of bubbles. So this is actually a caffeinated beverage. I think that this is something that's going to be like Red Bull, except really weird, fruity flavor. An an energy-ish Red Bull, diet Red Bull. That's a great. And we we should note, for those of you not holding a can of Buy Five Bubbles trademarked, if you're on the fence about whether this is an obnoxious beverage, Here's the slogan. Let's do a word at a time. Let's go around. Andrew, you start with the slogan. We'll go around in a circle. You're holding a fruit grenade filled with explosive flavor. Open with care. Oh, my God. Mine says something different. What did yours say? Mine says, wild flavor that goes all the way on the first taste and never a one-night can. Mine says, behold, fierce fruit flavor. It's like an exotic kick in your mouth pants. Guys, I got the best one. If your taste buds had faces, your mouth would be filled with 10,000 little smiles. Oh, so that was cute. Mine's very aggressive. All right. You could have, I've provided you with ice. Oh, let me also say, as we open ours, you could open yours. And as we pour, you could take it over ice or not ice. That's your choice. worst thing in the world. Oh my, oh my god, god, this is disgusting. <laughs> right, one disgusting. The color of that. Okay, my the color of mine is okay, but the color of yours, Mike, is really disgusting. Mine is yeah, the blood orange. The blood didn't come from the orange. It looks like tang, right? Isn't that what that beverage is called? You know what this tastes like? You remember those little sugar packets, colored sugar packets when you're a little kid? The straws. Yeah, like yes, the little straws yes, and yes. you put them on your tongue. It tastes like that, except much, much, like this is much worse. It's that same artificial sweetness, except there's also something on the aftertaste that makes it like very gunky in your mouth. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's So actually, I think that at first it tastes, mine tastes okay. It tastes like pear, actually, but then... The aftertaste is just awful. It's incredibly sweet. And then it's almost like metallic and it just like feels like it coats your tongue. It's gross. Yes. This is not a sparkling water. And this is not a soda. You're right. It doesn't seem sparkling. Yeah, yeah, there's not much carbonation going on I think it's closest to what Maria said. I think it's like a Red Bull. I don't know how much energy it has, but it tastes... Guys, put it down. Put it down. This is chemical. (laughs) What do you think, Andrew? What's yours taste like? I can't call it a Red Bull because of the bubbles. I feel like the bubbles... They're supposed to make it more joyous and feminine and less. Yours has bubbles. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. I think it is. Uh, well, it says bubbles. TM. It doesn't really taste like bubbles. No, I no, think it is it feminine. I think the words <sighs> antioxidant and infusion on on packaging speaks to the feminine. Tell you this, I did a little research. First of all, I noted most of the geographic areas, things like Jamaica, Indonesia. Um, where was yours from? Peru. In Peru. Now, Maria's was the what kind of grapefruit? Gimby, Gimby pink grapefruit. Gimby pink. So I looked it up. Gimby grapefruit, the number one Google search was this actual beverage. But then I looked up just Gimby alone. It's a section of Ethiopia. Does Ethiopia produce grapefruit? Went to Wikipedia, Ethiopia agriculture, first entry. The false banana. Laura, you're familiar with the false banana? No, I'm not. (laughs) Not in the fruit context, Mike. The Ensete, E-N-S-E-T-E, Known locally as false banana, was an important food source in Ethiopia's southern and southwestern highlands. It resembles the banana, but it bears an inedible fruit. So how is it an important food source? 
It produces large quantities of starch, and the local people make flour from the false banana starch. But Gimby apparently also does produce citrus fruits and maybe grapefruit. I guess that's what they were going for. Then I looked up what the hell this buy five thing was. It's officially a healthy, all-natural drink. It's a buy five calorie beverage, and they don't really even get into more details than that. There is no right answer to what is the buy five. <laughs> that was a little anticlimactic. Yeah, well, not as anticlimactic as what the hell this thing tasted like. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I can't believe I took another sip of that. I know. I met their Instagram page, and they recommend mixing what we're drinking now with Smirnoff. Mm-hmm. Oh. Red Bull. Yeah. Red Bull and vodka. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what they're going for. Right. But with uh, the words sparkling and antioxidant right. and fusion, thus demonstrating if you put enough right adjectives on a package, you can sell it at two for five dollars at the rainbow. It's not a really good price, is it? These are small cans. Small cans. Yeah. Luckily, you'll never want to finish one. <laughs> <laughs> Laura Anderson, Maria Konnikova, Andrea Salenzi, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Cheers. And that's it for today's show. We thought it best to remove the pineapple spikes in just producer Andrea Salenzi. So all that's left is the smooth, fizzy flavor. One swing of managing producer Joel Meyer and a tug of war will break out in your mouth as two palate smashers vie for control of your taste buds. Pack your taste buds for a whirlwind journey around executive producer Andy Bowers. He's off to places where the most abundant all-natural resources deliver super fruit goodness and exotic effervescence. The Gist is on Facebook.com slash SlateGist. A listener put together a Spotify playlist of all the songs we talked about with Chris Malamphy on Monday. Listen to that episode. You can hear the songs. Facebook.com slash SlateGist. The Gist is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. The Gist treats your taste bud like steel drums. Actually, if it did, I apologize. Certain beverages brag about that. Thanks for listening. <laughs>